I'm Jeff Gibson. And I'm Shanna Paxton. And we are the, the Movie, Movie Lovers. Lovers. Welcome. Hello. To the official podcast of the Gibson Review. In every episode, we celebrate the joy of film by talking about, in the week in review, what movies and TV shows we've been watching since the last episode. Move on to the main event, which is a main review or main topic of discussion, and move on to film faves. Our respective lists of our 12 favorite movies around a particular topic. In this episode, it is Black History Month, so we will be doing a main re uh, review of Judah and the Black Messiah. And our film faves will be focused on black cinema with a spotlight on uh, black filmmakers, black voices. So that should be interesting. We'll talk a little bit more about that a bit later, but let's start off first with the Weekend Review. Shanna, as I understand, for once, you are not the one that no. has had a bounteous Weekend Review, yeah? No, no, I have been very busy working. Very busy. Very busy here. All right, fair enough. And I don't have a lot that I have been watching because most of my focus has been either on prep for this podcast or I've been doing work for my uh, my series Disney through the years and that's that's been kind of interesting because I just wrapped up a little while ago the 40s 1940s you could see a piece I wrote about the nine full feature films that Disney created in the 40s. And uh, I'm in the process of moving on to the 50s right now. But it's really interesting when it comes to the 40s work, you know, after Snow White in 1937, the studio was kind of like picking up speed here with a new animated feature every, every year, you know, a new story. But then because of world war ii the international markets got cut off from them so most of their movies were box office failures they're having to suffer a loss and they had to really make a left turn and, and change their direction to making these less expensive anthology films to try to get some enough revenue to be able to survive in the future and it's really interesting creatively because if you watch straight through, I've, I've noticed like you can really feel that left turn. Like when it, once it goes from Bambi to the Three Cavaleros, it's like, what? What's going on here? You know, mm. you know, you could feel that that drop in quality, and it's like, okay, this feels like more like watching their animated shorts kind of cobbled together into one sort of thing. But you can definitely read some more on my thoughts about those films i review each of the films and then i rank them uh they are available on the gibson review and hopefully before the next episode is out i should have the 50s animated feature films piece written and published and i'll be uh off to work on live action movies because the 50s is actually when disney went all in on live action films so I'll be doing a, a piece, some, two pieces a month, one focused on animated films from a particular decade, and then another piece focused on live-action films from a particular decade. Again, 
more details on that, go to the GibsonReview.com, uh, click on the reviews and features, and uh, you'll see the Disney Through the Years articles on there. So that's all I'll say about that. But Shannon, you and I watched a couple of things that won't factor into the rest of the episode. The first is after a five-year hiatus, we finally took a deep breath and dove on in. Back in. Yes, dove back in to the Arrowverse, which is an, an, a, a huge franchise of TV series that we've been kind of intimidated by because we weren't sure. It's one thing to be on it on mm. appointment TV mm-hmm. as it's airing mm-hmm. and track it. But when it comes to binge watching, like, how do you do that? What's the roadmap for binge watching these, like, different shows that kind of overlap? So I found a, a couple resources that have a, a uh, agreeable consensus. And so we're following that. Mm-hmm. So we went back in. We dove in. We finished Arrow Season 2 because we were a quarter or so of the way done with it when we stopped five years ago <laughs> and so shannon why don't you share what your thoughts are on uh arrow so far and particularly how your thoughts may or may not have changed with season two man this was at times really difficult to get back into i was having second thoughts and i was like oh we should try green arrow again we can do it we have the patience for it it's really been too long mm-hmm. Um, we didn't watch it during COVID, so like right. pen, like quarantine. So we should we should watch it now, before we get vaccinated. Say we at least did that. And at times it was really difficult because sometimes the characters are so immature, immaturely written. Like They're, who? Like uh, the sister Thea, mm-hmm. and sometimes. Uh, even Oliver, Green Arrow, pisses me off. Mm. And then, you know, a couple other characters that I don't want to spoil. And I just feel like, like, okay, Thea, I can understand being this immature, not enough life experience has hit you. Well, because she's supposed to be like 19 yeah. and like rich. And she's trying to run a club and yeah, that it's just, it's not... Yeah, that's actually crazy. I never thought about that. Lost her father, lost her brother. So she's not completely exempt from life experiences. But if I look at Oliver and if I look at a couple of the other characters that I don't want to spoil, I'm like, you've had life experiences. Why are you acting like a baby? Hmm. You know, so I think I'm also super sensitive to immature behavior right now. So that doesn't help. So there's been a couple times where it's a ping pong game for me where I, I'm not sure if I want to continue and then I'll see an episode and I'll be like, now that was a good episode. <laughs> you know, I'm having a much better time with what's happening now where we go Green Arrow episode Flash, Green Arrow Flash. Right, with season three of Arrow, yeah, season and, one of Flash. Yeah. yeah, and I'm having a much better time with that. I'm kind of getting introduced to new characters in Flash and there's a couple of immature behaviors that I don't like, again, because, you know, some of these characters are young and it's just, just, I find it irritating. So it's it's definitely a ping pong game for me, Mm -hmm. uh, but I'm looking forward to exploring other TV shows that are part of this universe. So you were very mixed on season two of Arrow. Is that correct? Had, was it a hard for you to yeah, get through? Yeah, I was starting to remember why I stopped watching. Mm-hmm. 
Mm -hmm. you know? I felt that way when we started again. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, yeah. (laughs) But, but, okay, so here's the thing. The problem I had with Arrow is it keeps going back to this these flashbacks to this island. Yeah. And I get why they do it because sometimes, like, it's justifying what's happening in the episode or explains what's happening in the present in the episode. Uh, every once in a while, they do kind of, because it, you, you, you can kind of feel that they're making it up as they go. And so every once in a while, they'll paint themselves into a corner where something was introduced as being in a flashback. But then, like, in the present, they're like, well, why the hell didn't that come up before? Yeah. And they have to come up with an excuse yeah. why Oliver never brought that thing up before. <laughs> so you can kind of feel the wheels turning a little bit. But, yeah, the flashbacks, you know, at, when you watch 24 episodes uh, and plus, you know, like uh, over 30 episodes of this flashback, you're, you're eventually like, for crying out loud, get off the damn island. I'm tired of this. Um, I have heard yeah. that we're going to have flashbacks all the way through season four at least. Seems to be there, the show's structure. Uh, for most of it, uh, yeah. it seems, until like the last two or three seasons. The other issue I was struggling with is Dinah Lance, who in the comics, Dinah Lance is the name of Black Canary. Uh, That is not the case in Arrow. Someone else is Black Canary. But I was having a really hard time with the actress and and how Dinah Lance is written. She's an assistant DA. She is a past lover of Oliver Queen. This family of the Lances and the Queens have been kind of entwined for most of their lives but dinah lance always i was i turned to you at one point and i was like this is the lana lane of arrow yeah you know yeah, there's definitely moments like that with certain characters i really like did not like we both did not like lana lane in smallville played by christian crook was not a fan of the actress was not a fan of how that character was written and i was really getting some major lana vibes yeah. from dinah in arrow 2 nobody wants to relive that right but all that said for me i think arrow gets better starting with the second half of season two as things start coming to a head with the villain deathstroke there is some stuff that happens and it's like, okay, this is actually really good. And and some actual, there's a team of supervillains that gets introduced as well. And so you start like, it starts ramping up and it get, comes to like some pretty awesome climaxes at the end of season two. So I'm digging it now uh, and I'm still digging it in season three. I'm like, mm. I'm actually kind of jonesing for these shows, which is kind of what a comic book fan like myself wants out of it a superhero show, right? It should be how you feel. Right. That, that's when they're actually doing the job right. Yes. And it shouldn't be a slog. And I kind of feel like the first season and a half of Arrow is a little bit more of a slog, which, you know, that's easy to feel when you're talking about 24 episode seasons, you know, mm-hmm. that are 45 minutes a piece uh, per episode. So uh, I'm, I'm kind of digging it more now. And I'm looking forward to what we have in the future so i'm hopeful because we have a long haul we have over 500 episodes in the whole Arrowverse to knock out and we'll probably be speaking to it uh, off and on here as we knock out certain seasons of certain shows or whatever or introduce new shows and 
and see what we think about them. But those are our thoughts right now of Arrow Season 2. Yes, we are way behind, everybody. Uh, this is how it works for me in TV shows. Uh, lastly, this is going to be a great segue into the main event. We saw a 2020 movie we caught up with called One Night in Miami. This is Regina Keene's second feature she has directed. And it is about, chiefly, a night when Muhammad Ali, at the time, Cassius Clay, he was going by, uh, he, he won a match. I can't remember who he was fighting. And afterwards, Malcolm X, Jim Brown, Sam Cooke, and Cassius Clay all hung out in a hotel room uh, for a quote-unquote party. And it's about, like, what that would have looked like, what the, what sort of dialogue those four people would have had. It involved vanilla ice cream. <laughs> Jenna, what did you think of One Night in Miami? Now, this was originally a play. This is an adaptation of that play by Kemp Powers, who also co-directed Soul. What are your thoughts? This was a really beautifully put-together film. It was shot in glowing warm colors there's this one shot of malcolm x where he's just framed beautifully by light and you can tell that they were trying to get a very particular kind of lighting going Mm -hmm. he basically looks like he's being cupped by the light and then there's this darkness in front of him so he's being cupped by the back and darkness in front of him but then like this one streak of light that's trying to lead our eye to the other characters and it's just kind of shows you how thoughtful they were being with the cinematography and the music the score was beautiful and I thought the characters were just wonderful to watch I don't know what these people were like in real life how close they were Uh, what kind of friends they were to each other, but it felt like this wonderful love that they had for each other. And it's definitely something that I would want, you know, something equivalent in my life, you know, the relationships, how they were calming each other down, how they were giving each other space for their feelings and still supporting them Mm -hmm. during that, not running away from it. And Mm -hmm. I just thought that that was really beautiful. That was my favorite part of this film. We also get to see, you know, from a photographer's perspective, we see Muhammad Ali being photographed underwater. It turns out that that was his idea and the photographer was only too happy to to shoot it. But you see this photographer with this old-style camera in a waterproof housing and I just I, it was it was a little geek moment for me and then you see Malcolm X shooting with a twin reflex lens uh, camera and that was really sweet as well nice so yeah I, I thought the performances were great I thought everything about this film was was beautiful yeah I liked it too I wasn't as knocked out by it as I expected it to be but I think it probably worked for me a little bit more than the other movie that came out around the same time Ma Rainey's Black Bottom also based on a play also uh, featuring an African-American cast and all that sort of stuff I think what what's interesting about this for me is not only the cast who I'm not sure if we have the cast list up here 
Uh, they they are they're definitely worthy of uh, of shout out. But I thought it was a really interesting to see each of these people, especially like Jim Brown and Sam Cooke, who I don't think get very much focus on screen. I've never really seen them as quote unquote characters in movies before. It's the cast is Kingsley Benadire as Malcolm X. Eli Gorey as Cassius Clay, Aldous Hodge as Jim Brown, and Leslie... I love Aldous Hodge. Yeah, he's great. Leslie Odom Jr. as Sam Cooke. Now, apparently, Leslie Odom Jr. was in Hamilton, and I didn't recognize him in this. as Oh, that's a guy from Hamilton, but I've I've heard a lot about him in this. And he was great as Sam Cooke, actually. Uh, Sam Cooke was very well portrayed, and he got... I don't know if... It was actually him singing or what, but if it was him, he got the voice down really well. It was really cool. But what I found interesting is like Malcolm X is kind of the engine of the story. He's the one that's like driving the discuss- the conversation. He's the one that's driving the-, the night and where it goes among these four people. And historically speaking, like this is also when Cassius Clay was just on the cusp of uh, joining the Nation of Islam, which Malcolm X was a part of, but also his there was a lot of tension in his relationship with the Nation of Islam at this point. And, you know, this isn't too far before he went and made on a pig, pilgrimage to... Oh, which, which country did he go to in the Middle Isn't East? Isn't it Israel? Uh, I want to say it was Israel, but I feel like they said uh, another country in the actual movie. But anyway, it's not long before he made that pilgrimage. And I think it's it's really interesting for the points that's made, how well written the dialogue is. Saudi Arabia, that's the one. I was like, oh, it's not Afghanistan, it's Saudi Arabia he went to. So anyway, I, I really appreciate it uh, for its acting and for the points that it makes. I do think it just barely kind of edges on uh, some of the dialogue being like, okay, are we like projecting what we know happens in the future into the dialogue here? Just a little bit. There was just a dose of that. Oh, like the actor that played Malcolm X uh, was saying he feels like death is coming. Yeah, the character says stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Kind of, but maybe, mm. you know, thinking about who Malcolm was and thinking about how powerful he was and his inspiration, maybe he felt like that a lot of the time. Maybe, maybe, you know. I don't know. But uh, that was a feeling that I got just a pinch of mm. watching uh, this film. But, uh, yeah, I, I appreciate it. What did you give the movie out of 10? Oh, like an eight. An eight out of ten. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, I say probably about the same for me, purely for the acting and the writing in it. But Regina King, I thought this was her first feature. I was surprised that, to find that it wasn't. But it's very uh, confidently directed. I don't think it's very stylized or anything like that this isn't promising young woman in terms of like having a very particular noticeable lighting or shot composition or anything but on the other hand it does make a lot out of the small space that i would say about 70 percent of the movie takes place in so uh recommended it's on amazon prime one night in miami i give it an eight out of ten 
All right, that about does it for the week in review for us and moves us in to the main event, which is our review of Judas and the Black Messiah. Deputy Chairman Fred Hampton of the Illinois Black Panther Party. Repeat after me. stolen car, five years for impersonating a federal officer, or you can go home. The Black Badges are forming a rainbow coalition of oppressed brothers and sisters of every color. Their aim is to sow hatred and inspire terror. I will learn all that I can. I will learn all These ain't no terrorists. You can murder a liberator, but you can't murder a liberation. You can murder revolutionary, but you can't murder revolution. And you can murder a freedom fighter, but you can't murder freedom. that was from the trailer to Judas and the Black Messiah. This is our first full review of 2021, I think, Shanna. Oh, I guess it is. And the IMD description of this story is, it is of Fred Hampton, chairman of the Illinois Black Panther Party, and his fateful betrayal by FBI informant William O'Neill. It stars Daniel Kaluuya, Lakeith Stanfield, Jesse Plemons, Martin Sheen, uh, Dominique Fishback, and Lil Rel Howery. It is directed by Shaka Kane, who is a director that's new to me. I'm looking at what Shaka Kane has done before, and he did some TV work for High Maintenance and Shrill and People of Earth and a couple shorts and uh, basically stuff I've never seen. So this is a kind of a new talent, new voice for me. Shanna, when we typically do a review, we like to focus on the good first, what worked for us, what was positive about a film before moving on to the bad, what didn't work for us, what flaws were there, what sucked about a movie. Then we weigh the good versus the bad before moving into spoilers and final thoughts I'm curious, Shanna, A, did you know much about this movie going into it? B, did you know much about the Black Panther Party before going into it? And what was the good about Judas and the Black Messiah? Wow, that's a lot. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so I'll see if I can answer everything. I don't know a lot about the Black Panther Party. I only know little bits here and there, depending on what I'm doing with the rest of my life. 
So I'll be doing something like watching a documentary on one of my favorite musicians, Maria Makeba, and it'll come up in the documentary that for a while she was married to Stokely Carmichael, who was a leader of the Black Panther Party. I only found out after seeing the trailer for Judas and the Black Messiah that there are different chapters of the Black Panther Party around mm. the country, around the and internationally. So my knowledge seems to increase as I am watching films of various genres. I do know, however, that the Black Panthers were doing a lot of good that they had the community in mind. So having programs where children could come and get fed. Mm. When we watched Crip Camp, I remember the Black Panthers helped bring supplies. That's right. When um, they were doing, a, what is that called? Are you talking about the sit-in? Yeah, the sit-in. Mm-hmm. So I, I know very little. Mm-hmm. Um, I also know that a lot of Black Panther people died. You you also in uh, Trial of the Chicago Seven. Uh, is that we, Bobby Seal? Bobby Seal. We see Bobby Seal and and learn. You know, it's just it's very peripheral to that that main story. But Bobby Seal is there, and you get a little bit of the Black Panther Party in that as well. Yeah. So, I wish there was something. Maybe there is something out there, movie wise, that really, you know, is very educational in the way it's told mm. about the Black Panthers. But that's why I know about the Black Panthers. Mm-hmm. I wasn't sure what was going to happen in this film. I was very excited about it when I saw the trailer because I was like, "Oh, yay!" And at first, I thought it was going to focus on Carmichael, which meant I would see Maria Makeba, which it's not. Uh, so right, <laughs> at right, first, right. I got very excited, but then I was like, "Well, Daniel Kaluuya." You know, I I love anything that he does. So I was excited about the talent and Lakeith Stanfield as well, who is from Sorry to Bother You, right? I believe. So I, I loved how this film showed us the system that was in place under the government's control that was trying to hinder progress that black people were making. Mm hmm. And that was very well shown because Lakeith Stanfield's character does something. He's part of the system of poverty and he's doing what he needs to. And he gets hired by the FBI as an informant. He gets told Mm -hmm. that you can either do this or you can go to prison for, I think it was about six and a half years. Something like that, yeah. So he chooses to be an informant. And... As it goes with informants, you have conflicted feelings of what you're doing and what you're sharing. And he says that he's still in a system. It's just a different system that's keeping black people from progressing in peace and justice. Mm. So that was very well illustrated in this film. I loved the performances from everyone. I loved what they were talking about. I loved what I learned I thought it was all very important. The score to this film was stunning. It made me feel like I was getting put a pinch of salt in. It felt like a pinch of, you know, annihilation. So it felt like the score wasn't this traditional score. It was playing a little bit. It was a little creative. Have you got the name of the composer? Yeah, it looks like two people are credited. Mm -hmm. Craig Harris and Mark Isham. 
Yeah. So it looks like Mark Isham has done some stuff. And oh, then yeah. Craig Harris is the, the new person. And I look forward to, to hearing whatever uh, Craig has to offer us. Oh, wow. Yeah, he is new. This is his only credit. Mark mm-hmm. Isham's been around for decades uh, now. So that's uh, interesting. This is a kind of a composer debut, you could say. Yeah, and so the, I guess the last thing I'll say is something that kind of was confusing about this film is that there were sometimes real people, real people's lives being depicted in this film, mm-hmm. and at other times it was an accumulation of several members that had existed in the Black Panther Party being represented by one character. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's an important thing to point out, yeah. I guess, because it's not very, it wasn't very clear to me that that was necessarily what they did. But that's a common thing that happens. So Betty Coachman and Judy Harmon, I was very interested in watching them. So when I'm trying to look them up to see what they did in the real world, the real life, it, you know, I found this article from Vulture that these two characters were composites of real women mm. um, who were members of the Black Panther Party. And... At times, I was annoyed Mm -hmm. because I wanted them to be real. But at times, I was like, okay, I understand. You're trying to show a big representation here of of what characters were going through, what people uh, were going through. I'm glancing at this character guide Mm -hmm. by Vulture. And what strikes me about that is it says that women comprised over 60% of membership in the party, which is crazy. At its peak. At its peak, okay. Yeah. So here's what I'm, I'm running into with this film is, uh, and our research for our favorites list is there's a lot of black men stories out there, but I feel like there's not enough black women stories out there that are coming to my attention. And I'll try harder to look for them, but mm. I was very excited to see these women of strength and power being depicted. And I'd like to see more of that. I was looking up where I would be able to satisfy that itch. Mm-hmm. And it looks like Chirac might be something that'll help me mm. by Spike Lee. Mm. Interesting. Anything else you want to speak to it about uh, what worked for you? Oh, the sound design was really good, too. Mm. There was one part where the Black Panther group, uh, there were about six or five of them. They get out of a car and they start marching towards yeah. uh, another group, which is another thing to mention is that some of the groups in this film were based on real groups but names were changed of the groups and Mm. uh that was that was interesting i was like well why not show who they really were uh i'm not really sure what the choice is there but coming back to the sound design you know this group gets out of the car and they're marching towards this other group and their footsteps are marching it's beautiful it Mm. comes out so clear and it's just this extra way to layer the story intimidating too I didn't feel like it was intimidating. I felt like it was a very united movement. Okay, fair enough. Uh, So to point of clarification, Mark Isham, he's done uh, scores. His first score was in 1983, Never Cry Wolf. But he's done scores for such films as Point Break, River Runs Through It. Looking real quick here. Quiz Show, Nell, Last Dance. What else? Blade. He's been all over the place for decades here. Save the Last Dance, Crash, uh, and the list just goes on. He has a total of, 
I can't even get to the top here. 186 composition credits. So he's quite prolific and uh, been around. He was even in, uh, he did the music for Bill and Ted Face the Music. Anyway, so I will say that I don't disagree with you about the points that you made uh, uh, regarding the score or the sound design. For me, what I think is interesting is I'm not sure if I have seen another movie that's focused exclusively on the Black Panther Party before, mm-hmm. I'd, I'd have to check. But usually the Black Panthers are they are a supporting feature or they appear in a scene in a film that I've, I've watched. And usually they, they have a very militant intimidating presence in those films so the biggest thing i got out of this film was having to spend a couple hours living with and understanding and and getting a sense of the uh, members of the black panther party and what it was about and a lot of what you're saying about what they did is true and interesting but they they also were not passive either right yeah um i read something that black panthers at least with i don't know if it was with all of the chapters but with this chapter in chicago uh, they were feared because they weren't afraid to shoot back Mm -hmm. which makes sense what they're where they're coming from and what was happening to black people right and so of course at that time the government agencies like the FBI are a little itchy about anyone who may or may not be perceived as inciting riots or inciting violence or, you know, adding to a very volatile time such as the civil rights movement. That said, you know, there's a line when Jesse Plemons, he plays the main FBI agent in the film. He's he's the handler of Lakeith Stanfield's William O'Neill, I think. Yeah. And at one point he says, I'm all for equality, but you got to understand the Black Panther and the KKK are two sides of the same coin. They are no different from each other. Yet the FBI uh, is also willing if they need to, to totally give up their informants who, if they do not comply, to likely awful and horrible things happening to them. So it creates this question of, okay, well, is the FBI any different? Yeah. And, And so that sort of thing is what I found most interesting when it starts peppering the film with those kinds of ideas and questions in there because you know uh hoover and the fbi were definitely not that noble and righteous during this period no and you know there's many incidents to give evidence to that and we see some of them in this film I think that Daniel Kaluuya is great in this. It's a fantastic performance he gives as Fred Hampton. I noticed it seemed like he even had gained more weight than I had seen him have in any other role so far. Yes, well, he looked like a normal guy. Yeah, he was... (laughs) But 
oh my gosh, I was blown away. This very mild spoiler, this film has title, not title cards, but like it's one of those movies that after the film, it has like lines that explains what happens afterwards, you know, paragraphs and stuff. But it explains that Fred Hampton was 21 years old. He was just a baby. 21 years old. I didn't get that from this movie. I was like, oh, my God. I'm thinking I'm seeing Daniel Kaluuya. So I'm seeing a a late 20s, early 30-year-old man. Yeah. Not someone who I'm spending so much time with who's in his late teens, early 20s. So that was crazy to me. And I don't know that that's necessarily a positive for the film. But that was just a fact that blew my mind about this dude because... Mm. Uh, he was a leader here, someone that people looked up to. And he was a couple years out of high school age. It's nuts. So I found that interesting. Daniel Kaluuya, though, is fantastic in this. The key Stanfield, definitely not going to question his talent because he has a little bit of like a, a departed thing going on here where he has to, he's playing the mole, right? And he has to walk this balance of being believable in his role in the Black Panther Party, but also, like, being terrified, too, at times. Mm. And, of course, like a lot of other films like this, you start wondering, like, okay, did he buy into any of this? How much of his behaviors are an act and all that sort of stuff? But, anyway, Lakeith is really, uh, really great, too. But I really thought Daniel Kaluuya was such a presence in this film. You know, it's interesting you mentioned all these back and forth feelings that you're, that a character will have as an informant. And one of the things that you, I think maybe you forgot to mention or maybe I missed it is like the awe and respect that he mm. will have for what the Black Panther Party is doing. Mm. You know, it, there's there's beautiful things that they're doing they have all this bravery they'll go into a white extremist church yeah i was a little unclear what that was so i don't know what their their group is but it's basically the poorest of white people who feel just as disrupted mm. by police as the black people are feeling and you know they've got a confederate flag up and here comes Fred Hampton and his group, mm-hmm. and they're trying to offer an olive branch. Like, okay, we're in the same situation here. We need to talk. We need to yeah, that create, was, that create was an something. Interesting partnership. It was super fascinating and super scary and super like, wow, you did that. That's amazing. Yeah, I mean, that's how I see it. I, let's let's get into what doesn't work for us about this sure. film and, and 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 i would say that was one thing that i wish there was a little more clarity on is what how did that dynamic work what was that yeah. what what did that group really represent because they have a confederate flag and so there's there's definitely some ideals that are very offensive to yeah. the members of the black party right so I didn't necessarily get how that group could overlap, have a Venn diagram overlap with the Black Panther Party necessarily. Yet I could understand, though I I, I was also lacking a little clarity in this, how the Black Panther Party could have some overlap with this Puerto Rican 
organization too. But I, I feel like the film kind of lacks a little bit of clarity of these other organizations too. And maybe it was just like a run of dialogue in one scene that I just that just went over my head and I missed. Yeah. But I I. I felt like that needed a, just a little bit more finessing. So here's the thing. Yes, I, I feel like the film suffers from that a little bit, but it's also not the film's fault in a way because this is one of those films that, you know, Hollywood film that's trying to shed light on the Black Panther Party. But because there doesn't seem to be any uh, that I'm aware of, there doesn't seem to be any other Black Panther films out there that's focusing on the party and what they did, what their goals were. I mean, it's a lot, right? Yeah, you can't yeah. expect everything to be spoon-fed to us and and things like that. I think what should have happened is they should have just used, at least for the groups, the real names of the groups. And that way, if you're you know sitting there with your laptop, you can quickly look up. <laughs> be- because that's what a film like this, I think, should be doing, right? It well, should be making us want to know more so i i think that that is a problem okay but i I also don't feel like it's necessarily all the film's fault i think we're on the same page but for different reasons like i come at it more like i shouldn't have to google anything to understand any of the dynamics and what people are about in the film Mm. i should want to learn more and do research but want to learn more on top of the basic understanding of what is going on and and who these people are and i don't think that foundation is clearly laid in that particular case do you think maybe it's because they're trying to stay true to who they're following they're following william o'neill played by lakeith stanfield and they're following fred hampton played by daniel kalua and that's their that's their goal there. And they kind of spread a little bit away from that with the FBI and a little bit away from that with yeah. other Black Panther Party members. Maybe. Maybe. Let's talk about the the Lakeith Stanfield character because there's one thing that I, I think would have added another layer of interest in this film had they done it, which is you when you are an informant, you are a person that's caught between two organizations in this case it's the fbi and the black panther party right you have no allegiance to either of those things you are in a way like you are trying to survive right Mm -hmm. you're a Mm -hmm. so you are your you're allegiant to no one but yourself and i feel like it the film doesn't necessarily convey that enough because like okay as i was saying earlier you're not really sure how much he gets sucked into believing in what the Black Panthers represent, but you also see him enjoying his his meetings with the FBI agent and the luxuries that 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 comes with, and also being like sometimes scared out of his mind and wanting some backup. Right? There is an inherent conflict there of being stuck between these two organizations and i wish there was a little bit more of a sense of him looking out for himself separate of these two organizations and worrying about 
himself if that makes any sense at all like again like your allegiance is to yourself in these situations and so i didn't get necessarily enough of a sense of this person Mm. divorced from both those organizations yeah if that makes sense yeah that makes sense um yeah i definitely want more education on this so i mean that's that's good right yeah. Uh, the other only other thing I'll speak to, this one was way more blatantly bad. Martin Sheen plays the Hoover. Hoover, J. Edgar Hoover. And I know immediately that's Martin Sheen. I can hear him. But I also know immediately that's Martin Sheen in some really bad makeup. <laughs> like, that was... If yeah, I that's s- not his real face. We know his face. Yeah. His face is pretty fine. If I saw someone looking like that, I'd be like, what happened to you? Oh, God, honey. Like, the makeup was really not good in in the case of Martin Sheen in this movie. And that was probably the biggest weakness in this film uh, for me. D- did that work for you? The makeup? Yeah. Yeah. Really? Let me quickly look up what J. Edgar Hoover really looked like. As far as I can recall, through different depictions, he's been in many, depicted in many films, he looks like, you know, he doesn't have the most muscle-toned face, you know, so... I mean, okay. But he didn't look like a real person in this movie. <laughs> so I, I think I know what you're talking about. I think there was a bit of a lighting issue. Are you talking about when he was giving his briefing? with proje- There was projection... There was projection light. That is probably the most prevalent, but it has these close-ups of him. Yeah. And you could just see the makeup on his face. Like, you could see how they added to the bridge of his nose, and you, ah. can, you know, could see there's something not right okay. about his cheeks or his eyes. And I, I was disturbed by his face, but I usually am mm. wherever he's being depicted, because mm. I just... Knowing my being, this was not the best move, you know? Mm. So, did it bother me? I, I, It's hard for me to separate from what I know of him versus how the makeup looked on him, hmm. unfortunately. They're both bad. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, all right. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's just something that, of all the things in the movie, that's the thing that took me out of it um, any time that came on screen. Was there anything that didn't work for you for the film? Oh, I just wish that I knew more. That That's basic. And, you know, I've already said that I battled a little bit to keep up with, okay, well, who's this person and who's this person? This person doesn't come up on Google. Mm-hmm. It's It's hard to actually look for Deborah, who had a son with fred hampton Mm. it turns out that deborah changed her name yes uh so i was like oh okay that's why i'm not finding her so Mm. it's all a little tricky to traverse i wouldn't Mm. mind hearing a commentary with this because then maybe i don't know if it would be like an educational perspective or if it would be something else would be the focus like how hollywood does depict black panther party and Mm. how it's always in the background and very extreme mm-hmm. and never giving context to what created it and what the other intentions, what intentions they had. Mm-hmm. So. Okay. Uh, before we finish up, do you feel like we need to go into spoilers? Was there anything you want to um, talk to you about in spoilers? You know, I was keeping it for spoilers, but maybe I can just say it. You know, it's, it's not okay. something too, too spoilery. Not that biographics are, you know, biopics, biopics. I feel like they're exempt from spoiler talk. 
So there were three parts to this film that I thought were very interesting, and it all has to do with either fatherhood, children, or motherhood. The first part is when Hoover is talking to Friday Night Lights guy. Jesse Plemons. Jesse Plemons. Mm -hmm. About uh, his children. He has three children, uh, two boys, and a girl. And the girl is eight months. And he asks a question that is designed to induce fear and further strengthen racial prejudice. Definitely the latter, yes. And I, I just thought that it was interesting that the, the, at, that was the first introduction of sort of, you know, children uh, in this movie. And I just thought that that was so disgusting that every time... <laughs> I, this is how I felt in the moment, was every time I see men, you know, using their privilege of power, uh, especially white men, when children do come into the discussion, it's never really about like, oh, is Timmy on the baseball team this year? Or, you know, how's okay. Mary doing at home with little Samantha? Like, is she coughing up a lot? Is she moving past that phase? You know, never anything of sincerity uh, and understanding rarely, really, it's always used, the introduction of children into the conversation is always to in, uh, strengthen some sort of prejudice and further fear to cement the, the what I said earlier. Yeah. And I was so mad <laughs> when I saw that. And then we find out that Deborah is pregnant and Fred... And her are discussing, you know, what he's destined to do with his life. And it's, it's as if he knows that he has to really focus on, on fighting for the people. Because that is what he's decided his life will be. And Deborah kind of has this moment where she says, well, you get to do whatever you want with your body. But I don't get to have that because I am growing a person inside of me. And I'm not directly quoting i'm kind of summarizing yeah and i just thought that that was so interesting and then he shows respect for her you know through the dialogue and and other stuff and i thought that that was a really beautiful moment kind of furthering that uh, you know maybe deborah would have thrown her body in the line of fire if she wasn't pregnant. And I just thought that that was interesting. Well, we do see other women do that. We so. do. We do. But I was... Deborah's pregnant. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. So yeah. I just thought that that was very interesting that yeah. they brought that in. And then later, we, you know, a, a character dies um, who I, I think is a, an accumulation of several people of the Black Panther Party. Like and a composite. A, a composite, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. And so Fred Hampton is over at his mother's house sitting with her seeing what he can do to help right the victims yeah mother. yes and you know she says well how's deborah doing and you know he says oh you know she's done being pregnant mm -hmm. which i th as i understand from other women it's about month four that you might feel that way and so but she was in like month eight i think like either seven or eight and the the mother says really remind her to cherish those moments the mm -hmm. early years are so beautiful and he listens to her like you can see that he's listening and taking it all in and i just thought that that was such a beautiful moment because this mother who's just lost her son her son 
had a shootout with police. Mm-hmm. You know, he was fighting for his life. He was very scared. And that's what he's become now. That's his last thing is he shot police. And mm-hmm. that's what he's known for. That's what he's what known for now. Mm-hmm. And she, you know, she always, she says, oh, whenever I think of him, uh, I think of him at seven years old mm-hmm. and how he would do this sweet thing and this respectful thing. And just a really beautiful moment. And I just really appreciated that about the film. Very good. So does the good outweigh the bad? Yeah, I think so. Look, is this Oscar worthy? I don't necessarily think so, but I think that it's a, a good film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What would you rate it out of 10? Probably a six and a half or a seven, somewhere around there. I'm still thinking. Interesting. Interesting. We're pretty much on the same page, interestingly enough. I would give it a seven out of 10. Yes, mm. the good out- does outweigh the bad. This is not the knockout of the park that i expected it to be it didn't it wasn't a movie that blew me away but it has really good performances the third act especially i think is the strongest point of the film the the last 20 minutes maybe of the film is probably the the its strongest and the fact that we have a narrative feature out there that is about the Black Panther Party. I, I just think it's something, it's material that hasn't been mined deeply yeah. enough, and I, I appreciate it for that. But, I, but hope, I hope that that actually feels it, you know? Like, mm, I want to see more. Like, mm. there were different chapters. I was like, oh, there was a chapter in Seattle? Okay, I want to know more about that, you mm. know? So I hope more Black Panther movies get made. And not and not just Black Panther two, right? I just I just realized that I keep doing that. BPP, we want more BPP movies, please. <laughs> uh, so yeah, not an excellent film, but a, a a really good film. We do recommend it. You can find it on HBO Max if there's not a theater open in your area. You can find it in theaters too. But what did you think of Judas and the Black Messiah? Please email us at the Gibson Review at gmail dot com. And now it's time for Film Faves. For those who aren't familiar, Film Faves is a segment of the podcast that is inspired by a feature that used to exist on the blog, wherein I would count down my 12 favorite movies around a particular topic. Uh, We do that in this podcast. We have our own lists of 12 favorite movies. Why 12? Because other lists are 5 or 10 with honorable mentions, and I decided with this, well... The 12 has the honorable mentions. There's there's none after that. So 12 favorite movies around a particular topic. The idea is to give you a sense of our taste in film, but also hopefully expose you to titles that you have never seen or heard of before. And to that end, we will point out to you when a film is available on a streaming service. We, because there's so many out there, we focus on a handful. Netflix, Amazon Prime, Hulu, HBO Max, Apple Plus, and Disney Plus. Okay? Uh, Not every movie out there is available on those streaming services or any streaming services. Sometimes they're only available to rent on Amazon. But if they are, we will let you know. Now, in this case, in this episode... We decided to focus on black cinema, movies that are created by black voices, uh, be it directors, primarily directors, but maybe screenwriters too, uh, about 
the black experience in some way, right? Now, there's a whole gamut of that. There's documentary, there's biopics, there's movies about slavery, there's movies about the civil rights movement, there's there's other uh, movies, there's the more contemporary movies. So I tried to take in as many as I could in consideration. I made a very long list of movies that came to my mind on this issue that there's probably somewhere between 30 and 50 films and i hadn't seen everything we tried to knock out what we could i tried to do what i could i noticed though some of the movies that came to my mind were not by black creators which i was like okay well it seems a little perverse to celebrate on black history month stories about black people that are made by white people you know, so you're not going to find any blind side or the help or hidden figures or anything like that on these lists. But the films that I had not seen, I'm just going to give a shout out real quick. There's, there's about a handful or a dozen films I hadn't seen that I didn't get to take into consideration. Maybe they'd be on your list. Uh, they are like movies like Set It Off, Soul Food, Waiting to Exhale, Eve's Bayou. I don't think I've seen any of those. Right, Four Little Girls, a documentary by Spike Lee, His House from last year, Superfly, Friday with uh, by Ice Cube. So those those are movies that I hadn't seen. Maybe maybe you have, and they would be a part of your list. At any rate, Shanna, I'm curious for you. Um, what sort of just names names of people who seem to be prominent voices in black cinema to you that stood out when you were going through and trying to craft your list who were some of the names that really stood out to you in black cinema i really tried to make this not a spike lee list right right but you know as i was doing further research to see well actually who directed this film or who wrote this film, I had to get rid of a bunch of films mm. from my list. And what I found was that I'm a big fan of Ryan Coogler, Spike Lee, Jordan Peele. Mm-hmm. I'm a fan of David Diggs and Boots Riley. And I want to see them, you know, either writing or directing more things. Hmm. I did see that my list is, you know, I don't know if this is the best list. I don't know. There's movies that I wanted to still see that I just didn't get to. You'll find that I didn't include documentaries in my list. Hmm. So we'll see how it goes. Documentaries were a hard one because... I came up with a handful of titles and most of them were like by either Steve James or Ken Burns. I was like, well, oh, I crap. See. you know, okay. that's weird. But I, mean, I did. Ken Burns is great, but. Right. I did squeeze one and I'll talk about it in a little bit. But most of the voices that stood out to me are, are, are a lot of the ones that you mentioned. However, I would throw in there also uh, Gina Prince Bythewood and Steve McQueen and Ava DuVernay and even John Singleton were probably the most prevalent of, of black voices out there. I know there's there's also like Casey Lemons. Um, yeah, and then F. Gary Gray. Oh, F. Who, Gary Gray. Yes, yeah, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, who seems to make pretty good work. But then there's also the actors and, you know, other people like writers that I really appreciate. Like I have a newfound huge respect for 
for Ice Cube. I not only is he great to watch, but mm. it's great to see anything he's in. Really, it just mm. seems to be so much. I don't know. There's just something about him with his presence. Yeah, I, I mean, of course, I like him in the Twenty One Jump Street movies, but I'm really after oh, that's my favorite. after watching some of the <laughs> movies I've watched recently. I really yeah. want to see Friday and and yeah. maybe maybe the Friday sequels too. But yeah. let's uh, let's get on into it and uh, have you start us off with your twelfth favorite black cinema film. My number twelve is Dear White People. The movie, though, from 2014. There's also a TV show. And what's cool about the TV show and the movie is that some of the cast has migrated from the movie to the show. Okay. And are the same characters. It's actually really lovely. This is directed by Justin Simin. And it stars Tessa Thompson, who I've discovered is like, she's going to be featured a lot here. She's a goddess. (laughs) I love her so much. Mm -hmm. And then Tyler James Williams, Kyle Gallner. And, and a whole lot of other people, but I, I really love this film because of the way it is filmed and what it is saying as well. This sort of wake up white people, this is what we, we as black people do not want or need or desire from you. And that's always good to hear. I'm totally on board to listen and hear about what I am doing wrong or what needs improvement. And this film does that. It's about the lives of four black students at an Ivy League college. It's a fancy college. And there seems to be a couple of issues, not only within the college, but within the students themselves and against each other. And so it's just interesting to see what happens when things come to a head at a rather racist party that white people host. Mm. And so it's fascinating how things, you know, go from there and leading up to it. Interesting. My 12th favorite movie is my one documentary pick. Um, in truth, it was a substitute for a movie that I realized, oh, the, there's, the creator is actually not black. I'm very surprised. Uh, you ran into that a lot. I ran into it once. Mm-hmm. So I threw in oh, the one documentary I have seen that I could find that was by a black filmmaker and that's I Am Not Your Negro by Raul Peck, which is a film we saw last year, I think it was, and, and talked a little bit about it on the podcast. If you're not familiar, it's about James Baldwin, who tells the story of race in modern America with his unfinished novel, Remember This House. And I remember the film being a very compelling, very intelligent, uh, very interesting look at race relations in America through the lens of James Baldwin, who was a very intelligent and interesting dude. Uh, so I recommend that it's, I think it was also narrated by Samuel Jackson, if I remember correctly, but you can find that that, that film is uh, from 2017. Oddly enough, most of my movies are not very old. They're fairly recent. Um, and you can find, I am not your Negro on Hulu and Amazon prime. My number 11 is Do the Right Thing from 1989. It Yes, it is a Spike Lee film. <laughs> I'm surprised like, it's so low, actually. Oh, well, you'll see. You know, there's other stuff that's taken over. Okay. This is a great film. It stars Spike Lee, Giancarlo Esposito, hmm. Richard Edson, Ruby Dee, Ossie Davis, Paul Benjamin, Frankie Faison, 
Robin Harris. There are a lot of people in this film. It's, Bill Nunn. Mm-hmm. There's so many. And basically, we're, Samuel L. Jackson's in it, too. Mm-hmm. And what's happening is we're in Brooklyn on the hottest day of the year, and that's, you know, the heat does things to people and kind of bubbles everything to the surface. And really what happens is all the bigotry, the racism comes out. And everybody is fighting verbally, physically, and things come to a head at the end of the film. Spike Lee style with a nice, great shocker. Well, maybe not so shocking for some people. I love this film because of the performances. I love what everyone is talking about. I'm perfectly happy to listen to what is being said in this film. My number 11 film is by Gina Prince-Bythewood, and I've seen a handful of her films, not all of her films, but this is the one I remembered the most of the two favorites of mine of hers. Uh, Love and Basketball from the year 2000. It stars Sana Lathan and Omar Epps. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, Dennis Haysbert is in it and Alfred Woodard. So it's about these two kids who grow up into adults. They grow up with each other. Monica and Quincy. They love each other. They play basketball together through many life's challenges. What I find interesting about this film is Sana Lathan, who I'm not sure who got many roles as good as this one in the past uh, 20 years. But, you know, this is a girl who had to, like, prove herself throughout her life in terms of being able to play ball, right? Because there's she kind of experienced throughout her life this this inferiority that was put on her that that women can't play as good as men right and uh you know she she proves herself and some of the tension of the film is does she have to choose her career over her relationship with her friend and her friend also has aspirations of being a professional basketball player too but uh, i think that this film is really nice and and lovely and nuanced and more interesting than you might expect it to be and so that's love and basketball from the year 2000 it's available on hulu and hbo max my number 10 is boys in the hood from 1991 we just watched that we just watched it and i was so glad that we did because it's amazing it's directed by john singleton it stars so many people (laughs) we've got ice cube my newfound love we've got Lawrence fishburne angela bassett angela bassett cuba gooding jr Mm -hmm. and regina king too and this film is really well composed it's this great tapestry of uh, the different characters lives within growing up in a ghetto of Los Angeles and South Central. Uh, yeah. Um, and it says Crenshaw. Mm-hmm. So what's great about this is Lawrence Fishburne becomes this fantastic teacher to all of us, teaching us things about race, teaching us things about uh, what is it he's talking about when it's the billboard Oh, gentrification. gentrification. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. And just really putting things out there in a very easy to understand manner. And I just love the relationships in this film mm-hmm. that they're always there for each other, even though things might be really 
cruddy uh, depending on how you're being treated by either your mother or society or the the police Mm -hmm. and I, I just love what it's saying about fatherhood about motherhood how hard it is how you need to give up certain things as a parent how you you don't really have any control whatsoever after the you know the kid is what I would say 14 but you know I think we're looking at Cuba Gooding Jr. when he's maybe 18 because it feels like they're still in high school well yeah it's like 17 ish so maybe 18 they're at that age where they're looking at transitioning to college if possible. Yeah. And what what's great is they throw things into this film. Like there's a little discussion about AIDS and it's like, mm-hmm. you know, it's the 90s. So it's kind of the beginning of trying to figure out what causes the spreading and what doesn't and what precautions to take and yeah. what's a myth and what isn't. And it's, it's only lasting about three minutes, but it's great that it's in there. Not even that, but um, yeah. You know, they're touching on a lot of subjects like sex before marriage. And Mm -hmm. um, if that is going to happen, then how do we do that? And how do I know that you're actually the right person to do that with? And there's a lot of wonderful things that are happening in this film. Very cool. Very cool. My 10th favorite black cinema film is actually another documentary I found and watched and prepped for this list and was actually kind of delighted i can't believe it's this old it's from 2009 it's good hair by chris rock which you can find on netflix basically what what chris rock does is you know he's got two little girls and he's recognizing that there's a whole culture when it comes to women's hair uh, african-american women's hair and and you know some men also partake in some of this stuff too but really like women and this is not a showcase for chris rock to crack funny uh, in fact like yes there is some humor in it but i'm actually surprised at how restrained he is often uh, talking to certain talking heads certain professionals people in the entertainment industry and he uh, really kind of brings to light this billion dollar industry and helps me like I understood a little bit more about black women's hair, why they're protective of it. What's the big deal of it? The fact that black women who have hair like Beyonce or what have you, they're either they're either using a chemical called a relaxer or they're they're doing something called a weave, which, as I understand, is something akin to a wig that's attached. And it's it's very interesting learning about these things and the people who profit off this and also the cycle of how what the economic impacts are of black people, too. And that goes with the men who date the women <laughs> and as well as like what the job prospects are for women who refuse to conform to this industry as well. So it's a very interesting, very entertaining documentary. It's called Good Hair. It's by Chris Rock from 2009. It's on Netflix, and uh, it's my 10th favorite uh, black cinema film. I am super interested in this. Yeah. This is very interesting. Mm-hmm. All right, my number nine is another Spike Lee film. 
Black Klansman from 2018, starring John David Washington, Adam Driver, Laura Harrier, and a bunch of other people. This is a film about Ron Stallworth, an African-American police officer from Colorado Springs, where he is the first black police officer. He successfully manages to infiltrate the local Ku Klux Klan. With his with his Jewish friend uh, played by Adam Driver. Yeah, friend is kind of a, a generous <laughs> associate. word. Associate. Yeah, yeah. Um, and is based on actual events. I love the filming technique in this. This is total Spike Lee catnip, you mm-hmm. know, with the film, the camera movements, with the music, with the tension, with the real life slap your face, wake you up yep. kind of technique to it as well. So mm-hmm. I, I love it. Yeah, very cool. Very cool. My ninth favorite movie is from 2018. It is Sorry to Bother You, available on Hulu. Uh, a very weird comedy that I can't get into too much. But what was interesting about it and a couple of the movies that came out around that year is it speaks to coding. How, how black people feel like they need to change how they talk depending on who they're with. And in this case, it's a satire on that with Lakeith Stanfield in his breakout role as a telemarketer who changes his voice to a very amiable white man's voice in order to be successful at his job. And he does become quite successful and gets the the attention of the owner of his company, played by Army Hammer. This movie is brilliant. The way it's shot conceptually, how it's executed is unlike anything else I've ever seen before, but it also takes some interesting left turns as well with its satire. Uh, Underrated movie. I don't hear enough people really talking about it. I'm a little surprised that it's not talked about more than it is, Mm. but uh, I recommend you check it out. It's on Hulu. It's my ninth favorite. Uh, It's from 2018. Sorry to bother you. My eighth is Malcolm X from 92, also by Spike Lee, starring Denzel Washington, and then again, Angela Bassett. Mm-hmm. So uh, apparently I have, I have favorites. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so this is one of the longest films you will ever watch. <laughs> it's about three and a half hours, yeah. and it is about the black nationalist leader, Malcolm X and it, it it features his childhood it focuses on his life before he's arrested for ridiculous charges and kind of ends with his assassination look it's great because they're it's one of the best biopics mm-hmm. because it's covering this wonderful figure in history and all his life, really, and all the people he touched throughout his life and his relationships with different people. And I just love it. It's great performances by Denzel Washington and Angela Bassett. And there's other people in there, too. Of course, Spike Lee makes a feature. I highly recommend it. I even recommend watching an hour at a time. Go stretch your legs. You know, we can do that. It is a little bit shorter than the uh, seven samurai oh really oh my gosh and you don't need subtitles for malcolm x so go ahead enjoy (laughs) fair enough (laughs) my next favorite film of black cinema is from 2020 oh and i'm sorry you can stream that at hbo max oh perfect 
My pick is The 40-Year-Old Version, which is a movie that we weren't able to squeeze in before we did our best and worst and favorites list at, at the end of the year. Uh, and, but I did take advantage of the opportunity with this list, and I'm really glad I did because it's really funny and it's really smart. It's by, it's directed and written, and stars Rado Blank, triple F rated, yo. It's about a down-on-her-luck New York playwright who is desperate for a breakthrough before she hits 40. And she's in her late 30s. She's like 38, 39. She reinvents herself as a rapper, Rodimus Prime. She facilitates between the worlds of hip-hop and theater in order to find her calling, essentially, who, who she is. And it's shot in black and white. And it is surprising how funny it is sometimes uh, she is in situations where there's these in terms of theater in new york i get the sense that a lot of the attendees are older rich white people who feel good about themselves by by Mm. going to and touting plays about black people um no matter how accurate that it may be and she endures some of these people and some of those scenes where she's enduring these people and what they say are pretty funny but it it is speaking to some stuff that you don't see very often and and she's also like really good her you know not being a huge fan of uh of rap and its culture or whatever being an outsider looking in her rhymes seem to be really good and uh, really well thought out. So I enjoy the 40-year-old version. It probably would have been on my favorite movies of the year list had I squeezed it in in time. That is on Netflix. My number seven is available on HBO. It's by Jordan Peele. It turns out I'll only watch Jordan Peele's movies and not other scary movies. I'm totally fine with Jordan Peele. And it is Us from 2019, the horror mystery thriller starring Lupita Nyong'o, Winston Duke and Elizabeth Moss. I love Lupita Nyong'o. I could watch her forever. Uh, This is about a film, you know, that has spoilers. But basically all you need to know is that This family goes on vacation. Um, Our main character, Lupita, is pretty tense, uh, having a hard time letting go. We don't really know why. And then all of a sudden, there are doppelgangers that are showing up. Um, Every time I watch this film, I see doppelgangers. So (laughs) it's very creepy. Like in life, afterwards. Like I'm worried something's going to be out in the driveway. And that's not a spoiler because that's in the trailer but a very um, iconic scene from that movie where I think that there are doppelgangers coming for us. (laughs) It it has a really wonderful effect and touches other themes as well. My seventh favorite black cinema film is from 2019. It is The Hate You Give by George Tillman Jr. He, who directed a movie I didn't get to catch up with called Soul Food, and a handful of other films. This is one of the best movies I have seen to speak to the black teen experience uh, as a as one of the best teen films. 
It's been one of the best YA adaptations I have seen. Basically, Amanda Stenberg stars as a teenager named Star who witnesses the fatal shooting of her childhood best friend at the hands of a police officer. She goes to a white private school. She lives in a low low income black community so she's basically got like these two different worlds it speaks to coding again and it speaks to it really well regina hall also stars in the film sabrina carpenter common and anthony mackie a really really strong film i was very impressed with it's so much more than i expected as the hate you give from 2018 it's my seventh favorite black cinema film Shanna, we're at the halfway point. What is your sixth favorite film? My number six is also a movie by Jordan Peele. It is Get Out from 2017, starring Daniel Kaluuya. (laughs) This is another one of those where if it's got Lupita, if it's got Daniel, I will watch whatever they do, even if it's going to terrify me for days afterwards. This is a story about a young African-American visiting his white girlfriend's parents for the weekend, where his simmering uneasiness about their reception of him eventually reaches a boiling point. Uh, There are a lot of things that happen in this film that are referenced in other films going forward Mm. um, in our timeline and for very good reasons. It also has Bradley Whitford, which is one of our favorites. The Keith Stanfield is in this one as well. I forgot Mm -hmm. that he was in that. Mm -hmm. Cool. My sixth favorite film on this list is the oldest film on my list. It is also, uh, I've made it, Shanna, halfway through my list without a Spike Lee movie. This is my (laughs) first of two Spike Lee movies on my list. Well, good for you. (laughs) It is from 1992, Malcolm X, available Mm -hmm. on HBO Max. This movie is iconic. I remember it was a huge cultural phenomenon the year that it came out, too. There was a lot of Malcolm X merchandise out there, such as hats with a, with the oh. X on it and stuff. It was, it definitely had a huge cultural impact. Poor, the guy who was in uh, One Time in Miami, you know, anytime someone plays Malcolm X, you know, he's always going to be compared to Denzel mm. Washington, right? And I actually... To the credit of the star of One Night in Miami, I'm sorry, I forget his name. It's not an easy name for me to remember. To his credit, he actually was really freaking good and had a lot of, I could see the subtle mannerisms he had down and stuff. very good, yeah. But Denzel Washington is freaking Denzel Washington. Yes, this is a cradle-to-the-grave biopic, but it is one of the best cradle-to-grave biopics Kingsley ben adir is a person who played malcolm x in the one night in miami thank you shanna for looking that up and uh yes it's long but i also feel like i never remember it being as long as it is because it doesn't feel laborious because spike lee is freaking amazing it seems to go at a really good pace I love Malcolm X. I still, to this day, we watched it like a year or two ago or something like that. Maybe mm-hmm. three at this point. Um, it holds up. It's on HBO Max. Check it out from 1992. It's my sixth favorite black cinema film. Shanna, what is your fifth? 
Ah, my lucky number. Straight Out of Compton from 2015 by F. Gary Gray. Nice. Featuring O'Shea Jackson Jr., mm-hmm. Jason Mitchell, Corey Hawkins, just to name a few. And Paul Giamatti. And Paul Giamatti. I'm mm-hmm. always so tense when he's in a film because I never know if he's going to be a good guy. Because then he's really good. And if he's a bad guy, he's always really bad. Like, I don't feel like he's a gray person, mm. you know? <laughs> he's a little gray in this one. Okay. I don't agree with you, but okay, you can have that opinion. <laughs> um, okay. So, this is about the rap group NWA, a group coming from Compton in LA in the mid-80s. Um, and how it revolutionized the hip-hop culture with their music and tales about life in the hood. Uh, This is something that I have no way to relate to. I am really not a fan of rap music. It's too stimulating for me, and maybe there's too much truth in it at times. Maybe that's what's really, like, the thing that makes me not be able to handle it. (laughs) But I didn't know what to expect going into this film, And when we did watch it, I was so surprised at how much I love this film. I love the relationships that all these men have among each other. There are five main characters, uh, five people that make up this group. And we're focusing on their different life paths. Mm. And they're all very different from each other. And it's so interesting to watch them as a group does. They come together. They make uh, quite outstanding performances that impact people culturally and uh, sort of wake up society in a way but then as a group does they come apart go do their own thing and then you know maybe or maybe not they come back together and I was really surprised at everything that was happening in this film and how each person's life was affected and I just love their relationships i love the phone calls that they had near the end i thought that that was something really beautiful and something that we can totally relate to you know where if a friendship has gone away for a few years and then how how does it come back and i just really appreciated that part of this film very cool my fifth favorite black cinema film is get out from 2017 as you mentioned by jordan peele how could this film not be on a favorites list? What is there to dislike about this movie? It's it's nothing. It's impossible not to include this movie, right? Uh, it, it's it's there's, there's very few films. I feel like in in the horror genre, very few films in recent history that become make such an impact and become so significant as like as uh, Get Out did. It's also a, a very smart and very funny film, and I don't think people talk about that enough. Uh, with, a, of course, a brilliant cast, you spoke to that as well. But yes, I love Get Out. It's a great film. I think it's Jordan Peele's best film so far. I look forward to seeing more from him, of course. Shannon, what's your fourth favorite black cinema film? Well, you have already talked about it. I believe it's on Hulu. It's from 2018. Sorry to bother you. Oh, really? Yeah, by Boots Riley, starring my favorite Tessa Thompson, Mm -hmm. Lakeith Stanfield, and Danny Glover's in it. It's very exciting. There's a lot of other other people that are in it too it's wonderful little surprises and this is happening in an alternate present day of oakland and um 
our main character, Lakeith Stanfield, is a telemarketer. As I mentioned. Yeah, and we can kind of relate to that in our lives, you know, just having some sales experience. Mm. And I just am baffled at how good this film is and how crazy it is and Mm. how I can't say really anything else about it because that would just spoil the experience for other people so i hope you'll go check it out it's really worth it and it's on hulu so you're not going to lose out on anything really (laughs) very cool my fourth favorite black cinema film is straight out of compton from 2015 we're just one step off of each other on a couple of these movies here yeah uh you mentioned f gary gray so the thing about Straight Outta Compton is I have vague memories of some of the stuff that's depicted in in this film. Mm. All of it was kind of preferable to me because it wasn't my experience. And I really appreciate this movie for helping me understand and, and contextualize some of those things and also help me give so much respect to Groups like N.W.A. who, A, like so much from of, of hip-hop and rap, like sprung from N.W.A. and their presence and their influence in uh, the industry. It's, it's, a, it's very interesting to see who pops up in this film uh, that would become really important in the 90s. It's really kind of cool. So I, I really appreciate that. It's very well told. I uh, O'Shea Jackson Jr. playing his father, Ice Cube, is great in it. He's fantastic. The entire cast is fantastic. The guy who played Easy e is really good. I love how it very clearly depicts how Easy e was, was the business mind of the group. Like, that was his talent and, like, his knack is he had the business mind. He messed up. At some point along the way, he got a little complacent, but like that was his thing, right? He had a sense that the the rest of the group didn't have. And so that's very well depicted. There's a lot I appreciate about this film. So, yes, it is my fourth favorite black cinema film, Straight Outta Compton from 2015. My number three is Blind Spotting from 2018, uh, directed by Carlos Lopez Estrada. But really, why it's on my list is because of writer David Diggs and actor David Diggs. It stars him, it also stars Rafael Cassel. And the two of them actually wrote the film. Mm. So I think that that's really cool. It's while, while David Diggs is on probation, he starts to rethink his friendship with Raphael Cassell. Mm. He's pretty volatile. It's an interesting look at how the white friend doesn't really think about how what he does is going to affect the black friend's mm life Mm -hmm. you know if if the white man if the white friend is going to go run around with a gun and threaten this threaten that with his black friend next to him it's actually the black friend that's probably going to get the brunt of the punishment Mm. so it, it goes further into it and it's very interesting i love david diggs i hope he does more writing and i don't know maybe tries his hand at directing uh yeah i highly recommend this film please go check it out that film is greatly underrated, and yeah. has, it just it, it will blow you away if you haven't seen it. My third favorite black cinema film is my last Spike Lee, last of two <laughs> Spike Lee films. I managed to really 
narrow it down for this list so it didn't become the Spike Lee party. Uh, 2018's Black Klansman. I have realized Yay. is my third favorite black cinema film. Uh, that film is fascinating because it's both really smart and informative, but also really entertaining too. And he and Spike Lee, uh, I think, is really at his best when he's able to make his his films, his messages, what he's going for accessible and like a little easier to digest and a little smooth, you know, go down smoothly. But at the same time, what I love about it and without giving anything away is he doesn't let the audience off the hook mm. in the end. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you're sitting comfortably in your little sofa or lounge or lazy boy or whatever you as a white person or whatever you're you're not like oh you know i feel good about having watched this movie because he he hits it on home about why this story is relevant and so heavily relevant and boy that was that movie timely i i don't even think like i mean like there's some stuff that happened you know um, around the time that this movie came out and before it came out and kept coming kept happening after this movie came out so uh, great film, one of the best movies in recent years, Black Klansman. I love it. It's my third favorite black cinema film. Shanna, what's your second favorite? My second favorite stars Michael B. Jordan and Tessa Thompson. I think this is like my third or fourth Tessa Thompson film. <laughs> and it's directed by Ryan Coogler, who I am, as it turns out, a big fan of. And it's Creed from 2015. I am shocked. <laughs> That that is number Why? two for you, and not something like it's do the so right thing, good. because you resisted seeing it and the Rocky films <laughs> so hard, and you ended up yeah. loving this movie. Okay. That's crazy to me. <laughs> and we always have to thank our friends Jason and Amanda for <laughs> inspiring me to take that leap of faith and watch the Rocky franchise. But it turns out, you know, if I had to choose between Rocky or Creed, I I love Creed. A lot. Sure. And I love Creed 2 even more. But, oh, really? You know. How come Creed 2 is not on your list then and Creed 1 Was it is? directed by Ryan Coogler? Yeah, yeah. Oh, well then, by all means, we're going to switch it up here. <laughs> it's Creed 2. Really? I love Creed 2 so much. Really? Wow. Um, under the tutelage of Rocky Balboa, newly crowned heavyweight champion Adonis Creed, played by Michael G. B. Jordan, that's who we're looking at, faces off against Victor Drago, the son of Ivan Drago and it's really cool because it kind of ties everything together between the two franchises just a little bit more strengthens that tapestry and of course there's fatherhood and motherhood happening in Creed 2 and I find the the depiction of that very interesting between these two really successful characters Tessa Thompson you know is Bianca and she is a musician but she's also going deaf so Mm. it's interesting because boxers tend to go deaf too so there's these two characters that may sometimes yeah may eventually you know end up with the same hearing loss and they're it's just interesting how they do this hand I think 
it's interesting how they're there for each other. Yeah. And not th- how not, they communicate to each other. Yeah. Not that Adonis is suffering from hearing loss. No, Mary, he's but. not. I'm just kind of making assumptions. And apparently there's going to be a Creed 3, and now I'm super pumped. <laughs> okay. So, yeah. All right. Why did you love that one more than the first one? Oh, the first one was great. It was very sweet, and it was nice. Uh, from what I can recall, Michael B. Jordan's little journey to you know, being himself versus being who his father was, was interesting. But I love seeing Tessa Thompson and Michael B. Jordan together in Creed 2. Right. Being there for each other is, is like my favorite. And there's really funny comedic, there's really awesome comedic moments. All right. My second favorite black cinema film is uh, also by Ryan Coogler. It is... A lot of movies from 2018, oddly enough. I have like three or four movies from 2018 on my list. It's really weird. Uh, Black uh, Black Panther on Disney Plus is my second favorite film. I mean, come on. Like, I'm, I'm sh- I, I will be shocked if that's not a film that you want to speak to next. And I think you can speak to it in ways better than i can uh in terms of what it in what it includes in it that that adds to the cultural impact of this film and i think yes the film is a near perfect blockbuster superhero film in its structure and writing and and messages and what it's doing all of that is really great but i think people like these days get easily jaded because there's so many like superhero movies or uh, uh, movies of its ilk. They get very easily jaded and hypercritical and they forget, they easily overlook the cultural significance Mm. of a film like black Panther two, which was an all black cast minus two white characters, two white characters who are not there to save the day. They do not resolve the problem. They are very much supporting characters in the film. And uh, that's in, in a mainstream blockbuster film, like from what I gather, this was groundbreaking and a lot of people saw themselves legitimized and, and saw themselves reflected in ways they hadn't before. But Shannon, you could speak a little bit more to this. Is it your number one? <laughs> Am I wrong? No, you're not. It's my number one. All right. So why don't you speak to a little yeah. bit of, of, of that and what, what is in, in, included in the film, too, that, uh, that adds to that? So, look, I, I love Danae Guerra and I love Lupita Nyong'o, and I especially love them in this film. And look at that. Angela Bassett's in there, too. So <laughs> it's like, true. she's yeah. everywhere on my list. <laughs> yeah. No, there is a great cast in this. It's by far really wonderful. And then D- Daniel Kaluuya is there again, Michael B. Jordan, and then um, the awesome late Chadwick Boseman. Mm-hmm. So here's what I love about this film that I can try and relate to as a South African citizen. You know, growing up in South Africa, it was, I guess I was about seven in 94. So when Nelson Mandela became president and when it was supposed to be the end of apartheid and supposed to be, you know, this time of unity, there was a lot of celebration and a lot of cultural education because there are 11 official languages in South Africa. So there are many types of people in South Africa. You know, you don't just have, you know, 
Black English speaking people, you have the Kosa people, the Zulu people, the Sutu people, it goes on and on. And so these different cultures had different ways of dressing, different tapestries, different jewelry, and that would be evident everywhere depending on what uh, province or what you might know as a state, depending which one you were in. And you know, I'll look at certain films and I'll be like, well, that doesn't look really authentic. And But I'm just a white person, so I can't really, you know, be too hard about it. But when I saw Black Panther, yes, there was this wonderful representation of people, wonderful depiction uh, and inclusion of what the African continent was facing and this fantastic concept of what if you just left the African continent alone? What would actually happen? How would civilization be right now how would uh, the cultures have married and what would they have produced Um, not only from like a people perspective but specifically from you know imports what would the clothing be like the bags the jewelry Um, it it definitely is something that is coveted I, I see in this country and the costume designing really spoke to me because it felt like I was back in South Africa you know it all felt truly authentic and after watching uh, an episode of abstract on Netflix the costume designer whose name escapes me maybe Jeff can look that up while I talk we go with her and see her you know purchasing things going on the hunt for items and fabrics and beading what to use for Black Panther and she specifically talks about how she can't use something that was brought over as a result of colonialization she has to include things that you know never left the continent or have always been on the continent of Africa and that was a really big part for me and then of course you know I'm a huge fan of Andy Circus, and he did a brilliant job Uh, depicting the bad guy South African (laughs) and that was really fantastic and he got uh, the speech pretty accurate I felt and who is our costume designer that Ruth E. Carter who also did Dolmite is my name and Malcolm X and Almostad and so many other she is always working with Spike Lee and she speaks to that in the the episode abstract so I highly recommend Black Panther but I also recommend you know if you feel the same way about me as the costuming go and check out that episode on abstract as well excellent my favorite black cinema film is Creed oh you didn't ask me to guess (laughs) Well, yeah. Oh, that's funny. Your number two is my number one, and my number two is your number one. Well, sort Sort of, of, because you're actually a bigger fan of Creed 2, which I'm not as big a fan of. Uh, But Creed is one of the most rousing, crowd-pleasing, satisfying, surprising, amazing (laughs) movies I have seen in the past decade. I did not expect, like, in terms of a franchise, franchise revivals usually suck or are a little underwhelming. And this is one of the best franchise revivals uh, that I've ever experienced. You know, it's kind of a new thing, you know, but it's definitely a go-to example. And Ryan Coogler, who was tapped to do this after Fruitvale Station, a movie I considered, was uh, totally up to the task and amazing at it. Take, and, and kind of passing the torch, having Sylvester Stallone revisit Rocky Balboa 
He does so in really touching ways. He's fantastic, and I don't think he got enough credit for his performance in this film. But mm. but really, yeah, Michael B. Jordan, Tessa Thompson, I totally buy into that relationship. They, they are awesome. I think this might have been the first thing I'd seen with Tessa Thompson. I, I, I may have seen and not registered that she was in Selma also before I saw Creed. But at any rate, she's amazing in this as well. Man, there's so much um, uh, that that is to say about Creed. It's an amazing film, so it's my favorite. It's my favorite on this list. But what are your favorite films of black cinema by black voices? Feel free to email us at thegibsonreview at gmail.com. All right, Shanna, let's wrap it up with where people can find you on the internet before we talk about the next episode. All right, you can find me on Instagram at Shanna underscore Paxton underscore photography. And you can find me on uh, the ever-improving flick chart. You, you need to touch that thing. I don't think yeah, you've touched it. Yeah, it's keep been a long time. It. Spellbinding A. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, so thegibsonreview.com. Go there. You'll find past episodes of The Movie Lovers. You'll find all features uh, and reviews on there and past lists. Go there now to find Disney Through the Years. It's a series of articles I'm putting out. There will be two by the end of March uh, coming out. Um, so you'll see that. You might even see three by the end of the March. Depends on how far ahead of the game I get. Maybe I'll get into the 60s by the end of March. Who knows? Uh, but look out for that for reviews and rankings of Disney movies decade by decade. Go to Instagram. That's probably the best social media to follow, the, uh, the Gibson 99. I post the stuff regularly there. I share other articles and other posts on there regularly in the stories. I also do polls there. Most recently, we did a Your Favorite 2010 Movie poll, and Inception was the winner of that poll. We are right now finishing up in honor of the last episode, our 100th episode, with the Criterion Collection discussion. We're trying to determine what your favorite Criterion movie is. That might be wrapping up at the time that you are listening to this episode, either right before or right after. We are down to, I think, the final eight movies, if I'm not mistaken, final four matches of that one. So very interesting to see how that plays out, what your favorite Criterion movie is. Also, soon um, on there, you will see an announcement of whether or not anybody won the grand prize of our first giveaway of the Criterion postcard notebook, too. So keep an eye out there. Also, uh, facebook.com slash the Gibson Review. You can follow as well. Uh, if you are listening to us on a podcatcher, review us, uh, follow us, whatever it is that helps people get more attention to this. Maybe share this on social media. Who knows? And of course, I'm on Flickchart as well. I too need to update my Flickchart. It's been a while for me. The Gibson 99. Shanna, next time on The Movie Lovers, we have a little on air meeting here. First of all, we'll have a bonus episode of finally our review of Nomad Land. We're going to squeeze that thing out. I was off by a week mm. on, on my programming. It comes out next weekend. We'll watch and, and pop out a review of that thing. But our next proper episode will be a review of the United States versus Billie Holiday. Oh, great. 
what should our film faves list be? I asked you previously to kind of brainstorm some ideas. Do you have any ideas that oh, we can talk wow. about? All I'm having here? such a bad brain day, and you're asking me to get creative. We already did biopics. Oh, dear. So we can't do biopics. Well, and then I had said, what about music biopics specifically? Musician biopics. Right, right. But I don't, I, I think that's rather thin, and I don't think there's enough out there. Yeah. I'm not really sure what we're going to do, my love. <laughs> All right. We'll talk more about this later. Look for an announcement on the Gibson 99 on Instagram or what the film faves list will be. If you have ideas, feel free to submit them. We may consider them. But that episode will land on Tuesday, March 3rd. So keep an eye out for that. Until then, keep loving the movies. This is Jeff and Shanna saying. And Lady saying goodbye.